Join me in prayer once more, Father. We look to you again as we turn our attention to your word. and Lord, the work of the Spirit in our heart, taking that word and just drawing us nearer to Christ. So we thank you, Father, for that divine work that is always ongoing, for the conviction of the Spirit when we sin, and Lord, for the fruits of the Spirit in our life as we submit ourselves to his control. And Lord, the entrance of your word brings light. This is the, the light that lights the path that we are to walk on in life. So, Lord, I pray that we would just do what the scripture says and to study to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. <coughs> Help us as a church to do that. And Help me, Father, as I teach to do that, to always endeavor to be faithful in study and in the application of your word to this church body. And Lord, may, may it be a work of grace in, in my heart, a work of grace in the heart of the people here to receive it. I thank you for each one, for everyone, Lord, who names the name of Christ, has pledged their allegiance to him as their Lord. And Father, I ask your special blessings upon them, and even in this hour, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. So my first message of this new year is maintaining biblical Christian unity. And this actually will be a good preparation for Romans 14, which we'll, we will look, be looking at next week. Now, when I say biblical Christian unity, I do not mean unity at the cost of truth. We must never compromise the truth for the sake of unity. There are many scriptures that allude to this true reality. Jude 3 is one, Beloved, when I give all diligence to write to you of the common salvation, which is what we all enjoy, it was needful for me to write to you and to exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith, that's the body of doctrine, which was once delivered to the saints. And then he goes into verse 4, For there are certain men crept in unawares. These certain men that have, were creeping in in the church of Ephesus unawares and other places were false teachers. And that reminds me of Paul's admonition to the church of Ephesus, the elders there in Acts chapter 20, 28. We looked at this many times where he says, take heed. I love those words, right? Take heed. I've got a good friend, Cecil Landers, and he's over in England, and he has a ministry called, apologetics ministry called Take Heed Ministries. And uh, it's a good ministry. So he says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to feed, and that's your, your word for shepherd, to shepherd the church of God with he, which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves will men arise speaking perverse things. They'll, they'll twist the truth, literally, is what he's saying. To draw away disciples 
after them. So Paul warned the Ephesian church here about the, the threat against the church both externally and by internal division. And the internal division would be caused by people who were seeking to gain a following. They were drawing disciples after themselves. 1 Timothy 1.3, Paul told the young Timothy, as I besought you to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, he says that you might charge some that they teach no other doctrine, but that they would remain steadfast in the truth. So the threat of a division or a schism in the church, any church, it, it can come and has come many times from false doctrine that's being propagated. We have a, a statement of faith here in, in our Constitution, things that we believe, and that's what you should always expect every teacher of this church to, to teach, to be consistent with that. So it can come from false doctrine. It can come from a scandal of one kind or another, differing opinions about the decisions that the elders would make, personality conflicts, personal opinions on matters that are not even biblical matters, or even some issues which are really very relatively unimportant in the grand scheme of things. There's a verse in Song of Solomon 2.15. It says, catch us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. You know, I thought about that. And, you know, churches are vulnerable. They're like those tender grapes. And foxes can, can spoil the vine and destroy a church. And that same statement in the Song of Solomon has is, is become a proverbial truth that seemingly little things can cause great damage. People can get off on one thing or another. And, and it could be a little thing, and it can cause great damage. And that happens over and over again in churches, leading to division, and in some cases, church splits. You have heard that churches have split over the color of carpets that they were going. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know if it's ever occurred, but I wouldn't doubt it. And, but that's one reason why we'll never have a church carpet color committee here. <laughs> The sad truth about church splits is that many of those churches which have been torn apart do not survive. They go into the, the graveyard of church splits. So we need to guard the truth and guard the church carefully on every front to maintain biblical Christian unity, not ecumenical unity. Some of you may not be familiar with the term ecumenical or the ecumenical movement. The latter, the ecumenical movement, describes a worldwide church movement for unity. The Roman Catholic Church is you know, a big force behind that. But the word ecumenical actually is a biblical word. It comes from the Greek word oikumenai. And it refers to the, the whole inhabited earth. That's what the word oikumenai means, the whole inhabited earth. You, you find the use of this in Luke chapter 4, verse 5. 
in the temptations of Christ in the wilderness, it says the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Now, don't ask me how, how that transpired, but it's a fascinating verse, isn't it? But the word for world there is not your typical word, cosmon, which we see over and over, but it's this, this same Greek word referring to the whole inhabited world from which we get the word ecumenical. Now, as far as I can tell, the, the modern ecumenical movement, it's, it's nothing new. It began shortly after the turn of the century, but the roots of it were in the 1800s, the latter 1800s. The primary force behind the ecumenical movement today is the World Council of Churches. There is the National Council of Churches. It's part of this, the uh, other groups. But the World Council of Churches is, is the primary force. It had its first conference in, in Amsterdam in 1948. And the motto at that conference was, One World, One Church. That's interesting, isn't it? That was the goal, and it has seen some success, and it continues to pick up steam. It has seen success, because I just read a recent survey, and it's very recent, on the state of theology in America, and it said that 56%, so we're more than half, 56% of U.S. evangelicals agree with the statement, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and all the others. So there's your, there's your ecumenical fruit right there. Now, if you know the scriptures, you know that there is going to be a one-world church. But it's not going to be the result of the World Council of Churches, although they may be participating in getting the pieces in place for that. The power behind the one-world church that's coming will be the Antichrist. Revelation 13.6, it says, He opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and, and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him, this is the Antichrist and the system that he will put into place, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And this will occur in the tribulation period. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. There's your one world church. All that dwell upon the earth will worship him. And then it says this, it's interesting, whose names are not written in the book of life, the book of the life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the, the world. And actually, actually the sense of that phrase there are not written the greek participle with the negative in it it means they do not continue to be written in the lamb's book of life or the book of life i think the book of life the book of life has the names of every single person who was ever born upon the face of this earth and their names are in there and it's god's desire that they would be saved but when they reject christ with finality which of course will happen when they take the mark of the beast their names are blotted out, as it says in Revelation 3, 5, from that book of life. And that's a permanent condition, by the way. That's the sense of the, of the, of the, the Greek par participle, or the, or the perfect tense, with the negative in it, the not, the negation. Do not continue to be written. So 
they're done. But I, I, I was looking at that statement there, and the words that stuck out to me was, make war with the saints. Make war with the saints. You know, physical persecution, and that's what we're referring to there in the tribulation period. Uh, physical persecution leading to Christian martyrdom is just one tactic of the enemy. But Tertullian, in the, I think the third century, was correct in saying that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Physical persecution has never stopped the church. It's caused the church to grow and to be strong. It weeds out the, the terrors from, you know, uh, um, um, it, it, that are within the flock. And the true church will always grow under persecution. And we see that in many countries in the world today. So the real threat, the greater threat to the church is from discord and division and false teaching. These are the things that really, really threaten the church. Now, let me just say this when we talk about unity. We have an organic unity in the church because we all have been baptized by one spirit into one body. That's God's doing. That's not our doing. That's the spirit's doing. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For by one spirit, the Holy Spirit, we were all baptized, which means immersed, joined together in one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. We've all been made to drink into one spirit. We've all partaken of that work of the Holy Spirit of God. And then he says, for in fact, the body is not one member, but many. So it's the Holy Spirit of God who brings about this unity. Our task is to maintain the unity that the Holy Spirit of God has brought about. We're not all the same. We are not all the same. We have different gifts, preferences, interpretations of certain Bible passages, music preferences. Unity, you've heard it says, is not uniformity. We don't always think exactly alike on everything. But the organic unity that we have, having been baptized into one body by the Holy Spirit of God, has to be maintained, and that takes work. And it has to be maintained at the local church level, every local church. Well, how does that happen? Well, who baptized us into, into this one body? The Holy Spirit of God. And when Christians walk under the control of the Holy Spirit of God, unity will be maintained. And you know that we are walking under the Spirit of God, under the control of the Spirit of God, when the fruits of the Spirit are evident in our life. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not be drunk with wine, which means don't come under the influence of alcohol or any other type of controlling substance wherein is excess, but be filled. And that word means controlled. It really has the idea of complete control. It means you surrender yourself to the Spirit of God. Be filled or controlled by the Spirit. So rather than letting any substance in life, anything at all, control you, let the Spirit of God control you. That's what he's saying. We all need the power of the Holy Spirit operating in our lives. 
in our homes, at the workplace, in the life of this church, as we go about the work that God has called us to do. And I believe that that should be the, the aspiration and the resolution that we all have this new year, that we would seek, seek to surrender our hearts and our life to the Spirit of God. It will be another year of the unknown. Right? We all agree. So we have to be close in close fellowship with the Lord through the indwelling Holy Spirit and close fellowship with one another so that we can together and we need each other, we can weather any unexpected storm that will come our way and continue to serve the Lord with gladness, with joy. Christians are admonished many places of Scripture to avoid division, which ruptures the, the church body and destroys fellowship. 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul says this, I beseech you, those are very strong words. He says, I'm begging you. I'm imploring you. Now, I want you to stop and think. This isn't Pastor Tom saying this. This isn't one of the elders saying this. This is the, the Apostle Paul, the man who had personal revelation, you know, from God, saved in a dramatic, wetter, uh, dr dramatic manner, caught up into the third heavens, wrote much of the New Testament, most of the New Testament. He says, I implore you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.10, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions. The Greek word is schismata, schisms among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. The same judgment is your actions in the things that you will do. Now, when he says, speak the same thing and be of the same mind, he's talking about as far as the essential truths and mission of the church under the leadership of the, the elders of the church is concerned, that you come together around those things and around the decision that the church leaders have made, which they feel is best for the church body so that it can stay intact so that it can accomplish the purpose for which it exists, to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to build up one another in the faith, to disciple one another. I mean, the, the, Paul's admonition there is very clear, very clear and very strong. And the problem was that the church at Corinth was dividing over their, over their favorite teachers. Some were saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of a Peter, and so forth. And it's been suggested that those divisions represented competing house churches because there, was, there were no big assemblies you know, that we see today. They were relatively small. They were meeting in homes throughout Corinth, throughout the city. And perhaps some were saying, well, you know, we follow Paul more than anybody else. Or you know, we think Apollos is the guy. No, we think Peter is the guy. And then those who were really spiritual would say, well, we're of Christ. You know? So what that's describing is sectarianism. People pulling off into little groups. And it wasn't healthy. It was causing division. What does division mean? Division, the schismata, is, is a rent or a tear. That's what the word means. A rent, to rend or to tear. To rend or to tear what? The fabric of the unity of the church. 
Now, you know as well as I that, that if you have a small tear in a garment, it's going to heal itself, right? It's, it's going to get smaller, right? No, what happens? It's going to get bigger. You, you, you get a tear in your jeans or wherever, whatever, your pants, whatever it is. It's, it's, it's going to only get worse. That's why you put patches on them, right? Well, they don't put patches on them. Now they sell them for 80 bucks. You know? <laughs> uh, so in addition to that, the church of Corinth was also experiencing class division. Class division. 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen, Paul said this. First of all, when you come together in the church, so this is the local church, not the universal church, I hear that there be divisions, there's your word again, that he used before, schismata, among you, and I partly believe it. For there also must be heresies, and that word means dissensions, among you, and, and this is a, you know, sort of an interesting thought in and of itself, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. Well, what is Paul saying there? As unfortunate as divisions are in the church, God uses those things, that very division, to reveal those who are faithful to the Lord. That's what he's saying. It separates those who are faithful to the Lord and striving to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace from those who are not. That's what he's saying there. And that's what God does. But then he goes on. When you come together, therefore, into one place, is this not to eat the Lord's Supper? And we do that for a Sunday of every month. For in eating, everyone takes before his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. And if you know the context of that, what Paul is saying is that in those small home churches in Corinth, as part of the Lord's Supper, there was the agape meal. And it was a meal. They, they served food. And then in the context of that serving of the food and food bringing get people together, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper, which was a beautiful picture of the unity and the fellowship that they all enjoyed with Christ. But what happened was probably the richer people were meeting alone and they were eating the better things and the, the poorer people, they were not eating, uh, they were not even having as much to eat. So this division was between the rich and the, the ordinary folks in the church, what we would call the haves and the have-nots. And what was happening was that it was dividing the body, and it was, it was really nullifying the, the very significance of the, the Lord's table, which we all partake of. It was destroying that, that very thought and that unity. And, and because... The church was so fragile at that time in its infancy. Paul says, for this reason, some of you are sick. God is disciplining you with sickness, and some are even dying. God is taking you home prematurely. That's how serious it was. Another warning against the vision is found in Titus 3.9, where Paul says, avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law. Well, I don't think we strive about the law now, but we can strive about a lot of other things, right? 
You know what it says? For they are all are unprofitable and vain. Don't go there. There's no profit to it at all. And then he adds in verse 10 of Titus 3, a man that is a heretic. And that literally means a divisive person. After the first and second admonition, reject them. That's what, what, what he said there. Now, maintaining biblical unity in a church is what we want to do, but it's not easy. It's not easy. Because we're all different, right? And I've listed two reasons here why it is, in particular, difficult. One, because churches, every church, gospel-preaching church, faces an unrelenting enemy. Just as we all do in our life. First Peter 5a, what, is Paul, what does he say? Be sober. You know what that means? Clear-headed, clear-minded, right? Be sober, be vigilant, on guard, on guard. Because your adversary, your opponent, the one who opposes you because he opposes God, the devil, as a roaring lion, is walking about seeking whom he may devour. Now, who is he going to devour? Who, who, who typically do wolves pick on, right? The, the most vulnerable, right? They look for easy prey. So I look at that verse and I say, you know, I think, you know, when people seem to want to pick a fight with me, or me with them, I, I need to ask, where is this coming from? Where is this really coming from? It could be my own flesh, my own pride, or theirs. Or it could be that there's more, a more sinister force behind it, using my flesh, my pride, to achieve its goal. You know, I was thinking of Job. When Job's wife said to him, curse God and die, where did that come from? What, what was the force behind that to cause her to speak up in such a matter? So we face an unrelenting enemy making unity difficult at times. Another reason why it is hard to maintain unity in a church or our homes is because the, the only constant in, in life, the only constants in life are change and God. And change, some people don't like change. You know, they're, they're, they're fearful of change. But God doesn't change, right? Malachi 3, 6 says what? I am the Lord. I change not. Amen. Psalm 102, verse 25. Of old hast thou laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of, of thy hands. They will perish but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them will wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. So the whole universe, created universe, is changing. But God who created them never changes. He says, but thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. So I just want to say to you that as we anticipate the many changes which will take place in our lives this year, we can rest, we can rest in peace in a sense that God never changes. He never changes. He'll always be there for us. 
He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the theological term that we use to describe his unchanging nature is immutability. And you know, that word in itself sounds strong, doesn't it? And it's significant. God never changes. But we, we will face change. We can't avoid it. Will Rogers, you know, in the wisdom, the great wisdom that he had, he says, things are not the way they always were and probably never was. <laughs> and that's true. We're going to lose some people for one reason or another this year. We're going to gain some new people. That's the norm in churches. There will be changes in your family life. Maybe you'll have a young one going off to college. And as society continues to change, and I might add, for the worse, it has great impact on churches. It's going to have greater and greater impact on churches. So one thing we can count on is the reality that churches which are faithful to preaching the gospel can be sure that their spiritual enemies will be relentless in their attacks against them. So that's one thing we can be certain about. As everything around us is changing, in the, in the, the culture and everything, Satan is never going to let up. He's never going to change his tactics. He's always going to come against the church. He's always going to try to get in your family and divide your home and, and turn parents against children and children against parents. Because that's what he does. That's what he does. So in the midst of the constant changes that are going to come our way, we need to maintain fellowship first with the Lord and then with one another. 1 John 5, 3 says, That which we have seen and, and heard declare we unto you that you may also have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 1, verse 3, and he just thanked them, he said, for for the blessed fellowship that he had with them. Paul went on, or John went on in John's gospel, or epistle, 1 John 5, 3 and verse 4. He says, in these things, speaking of the fellowship we have with the Father and with each other, these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. So that you may experience the fullness of, the, of joy. And true Christian fellowship with Jesus and in the church body, when you have it with the Lord, and when it's present in a church, it's a source of joy. When it's not present, there's tension. There isn't joy. So joy is the natural outcome of fellowship. It's the natural outcome of fellowship with God and with one another. Nehemiah 8.10 says... Then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them. This is after the completion of the building of the wall. For whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So how strong are we, right? How strong are you personally? Are you experiencing the joy of the Lord in your life? What about the life of our church? How strong is it? Are, are we in blessed fellowship together experiencing that joy with Jesus and with each other? We'll be strong. We could weather the storms. And I just want to remind you this morning that the benefits of fellowship with God are received in both this life 
and the life beyond. And that's what Paul, or that's what is meant in Psalm 16:11. That will show me the path of life. That's this life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. That's fellowship with the Lord while we're walking that path of life. And then he says, and at thy right hand, there are pleasures for what? Forevermore. Forevermore. Listen, I have heard it said that you can be so heavenly minded that you are no earthly good. I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that at all. The more I think about joy forevermore with the Lord, the more I am motivated to serve him with the, with the time of my life that I, that I have left. What else am I going to live for? So I don't think Christians think too much about heaven. I think Christians don't think enough about heaven. And if they did, if, they do, if you do that more, Man, it's, it's just a tremendous source of comfort. It's a tremendous source of joy. And I think it's a tremendous motivation. Because what's your natural desire if you're enjoying something? You want to what? You want to share that with people. You, you want to tell people you know, about what you have if it's, if it's very meaningful to you. And this is why, and, and I, I say this, you know, I, I realize I don't have no intention of offending anybody. But I do not understand how a Christian could never share the gospel with anyone. That's beyond me. In your workplace, people need the Lord. Wherever you meet them, if you have opportunity, they need Jesus. You're going to have joy and blessings forevermore. What about them? What about them? The tie that binds Christians together, which is what we need, is striving by the power of the Holy Spirit to have the mind of Christ. This is what Paul said in Philippians 2, verse 2. Fulfill ye my joy that you all be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And again, pertains to the essentials. Essentials of the gospel, the doctrines of the faith, the, the purpose of the church, the mission of the church. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own thing, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Jesus Christ. So it's having the mind of Christ. Through the power of the Holy Spirit of God, working that in us. And Paul tells us here that being like-minded and of one accord requires humility. It's lowliness of mind. And lowliness of mind, thinking less of yourself and more highly of someone else, that requires self-denial. Don't look everyone on your own things, your own needs, but every man also on the things of others. Now, that doesn't mean you neglect your own needs because we do have needs that have to be met and your family's needs. But you must look out for other people as well. Look, look not on your own affairs. We could translate that. But also on the 
the affairs of other people, the circumstances of life that they find themselves in. So it requires self-denial to be like-minded and have the mind of Christ. It also requires imitating the humility of Christ. And that's why Paul says, let this mind be in you which was also in Jesus Christ. He's the ultimate example for us as believers. Ray Stedman says, when everybody decides to put the things of Christ first and is willing to suffer loss, maybe it's the loss of your opinion, right? Whatever it is, that the honor and the glory of Christ might be advanced. That is what brings harmony in a congregation. Okay, I feel very strongly about this, but I'm going to let it go. I'm going to let it go. I'm going to follow the example of Jesus Christ. That's what brings harmony. That is always, Stedman says, the unifying factor in a church. And that is the mind that is to be among us. The mind that does not consider itself the most important thing. Right? And I have to tell you that maintaining unity in the church is hard work. It's not easy. Paul told the Ephesians, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord, chapter 4, verse 1, I beseech you again. Here's the same word. I implore you. I beg you that you walk worthy of the calling wherewith you were called. Well, you were called, right? You were called to salvation through, through faith in Jesus Christ. Now we have to work out that calling. We have to demonstrate that calling. And he says, here's how we do it. With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, and here's where the hard work comes in endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Endeavoring means to exert yourself to give due diligence, strong diligence to attain the task. 1 Thessalonians 2.17 We, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. So Paul is saying we, we exerted an effort. We were diligent because we wanted to see you, to see you face. Endeavor means to labor, hard work, labor, to strive, to put forth an effort. I'll give you two examples of a positive use. And this one you probably are not even familiar with. 2 Timothy 2.15, where Paul says, study, study. The Greek word is spudadzo. It means endeavor. It means put out an effort. Put out an effort to show yourself approved unto God. Listen, study is hard work. I'll be the first one to tell you that. Study is hard work. You, you students, you young people, you need to work hard. There's no excuse for laziness in your schoolwork. None whatsoever. This is the time of your life where you need to put yourself to the task at hand. Marie and I were talking with a girl the other a little while ago, she was uh, from China. You think you have it hard? She left China. Her mom and dad told her to leave when she was 14 years old. Now, who's 14 here? Go to another country. Go to America. Because this is where you will have a chance to succeed. But she was telling us about China. She says, they start studying. We started studying for our SATs in our sophomore year. And she says... I did nothing but study. 
She says, because in China, when you take your SATs, you have one shot at it. And the cream of the crop goes to foreign schools and universities and becomes something, and all the rest. She says, most of them just enter the common labor force. And that's not good. She had a job in China, she told us young people. And she worked in a Starbucks as a barista. And Marie says, well, how much did you get paid? And she said, eight. And Marie says, well, eight dollars an hour? No, eight dollars a day. It's hard. So these, these young people, the competition is fierce. So they want to make something for themselves and not end up in the life that they have. That's just a little side thing. It's for free here. Study. Second Peter 3.13 Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, the future that lies before us, be diligent, spudazzo, endeavor, that you may be found of him in peace, without spot, and blameless. So work hard to live a godly life. That's what he's saying. Study to show yourself approved to God. Work hard to live a godly life. So every believer in a local church must be diligent, must endeavor, strive to maintain, which means to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace because we all serve the same Lord. We're not exalting our own positions. We're serving the same Lord. We have the same Holy Spirit. Why can't we have unity? We're all saved. We're all saved by the same gospel, right? We're all preaching the same gospel. So it's a unity based on a common faith and common allegiance to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that unity is made visible by the love, by the patience, by the forgiveness that we have for one another and the service that we render to each other because we share all the blessings that God has given to us and the peace that God has given to us that passes all understanding. We have to strive to maintain that. That's what Paul is saying. I just want to close with a little word from the Lord's Prayer for Unity in John 17. John 17, 20, Jesus says, Neither I pray for these alone, his disciples, but for them also which will believe on me through their word. That's us. That's every believer. And what does he say? That they may all be one. As thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they may be one in us. He's talking about the, the unity of the Godhead. And, and he's calling us to, to have the same type of a unity. That they may be one in us. And then here's what he says. That the world may believe that you have sent me. What do unbelievers think when they hear of church splits? What do unbelievers think when they hear about Christians fighting among themselves? I think we all know the answer to that, right? It negates our testimony. It negates literally the power of the gospel. Why should I want that? Paul said this too, and I read these verses before where he says that we have to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Ephesians 3, 1. I beseech you, brother, prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, walk worthy of the calling. Note the word calling, wherewith where, where you were called. 
the vocation, the calling, with all lowliness and meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity spirit of the body. There is one body, one spirit, even as you were called in the hope of your calling. Four times he mentions our calling as believers in the context of unity. What were we called to be? Ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Wherever we go, we represent Jesus Christ. The church represents Jesus Christ. So brother, I implore each and every one of you, in your homes, in your workplaces, wherever you go, in the church, remember your calling. You were called to represent the King of Kings. You are his ambassador. Model him. Follow him. Let the mind that was in Christ be the mind that governs and controls you. And I pray that for our elders in this church and the deacons. Even though we would have different ideas about certain things, that we would be willing to let those things go for the sake of the collective decision and will of whether it be the elders or the deacons or the church body together. Because this is what God has called us to. Listen, we don't always have things right. I don't always have it right as a pastor. The elders don't always have everything right. You may have some better ideas on things. You may see things differently. But I will say this to you. When the leadership of the church, the under-shepherds of Jesus Christ, are in unity and make a decision pertaining to the church body that they feel is in the best spiritual interest of the church, your responsibility unto God is to submit to that. If you can't, then, then you're probably in the wrong place. And my, I would say you probably wouldn't be able to submit to the leadership of another church body. And that's the way it is. What I'm saying to you is, is what the Bible teaches. It really is. Young people in your home, you may not agree with everything precisely that your parents do. And as you got older, you know, you may take more and more exceptions to things. What's your responsibility? To obey them. To submit to them. Wives, same thing with your husbands. Your husband may not be the brightest bulb on the planet. Right? He may not have the best ideas. But if he's not asking you to do anything ungodly and he thinks it's in the best interest of the family, what's your responsibility? Submit to him. Follow him. It's not hard, right? This is not rocket science. This is nothing new. But I think it's everything that God would have us to do. Father, thank you this morning for this time together. As we head into this near, new year of the unknown, help us, Lord, to respond to the changes all around us in life in a biblical way. And I pray, Father, that you would really bring us together more than ever as a church 
so that we could be about the task you've called us to do without distractions, to build up one another, to preach the gospel, to support those who are preaching the gospel where we can't. All those things, Father, that that are part of the responsibilities we see laid out in Scripture. Help us not to get overcomplicated, make things overcomplicated. Help us to keep it as simple as we can, to stay on task, to love one another, to be patient with one another, to be kind and courteous to one another, to pray for one another, to think of others better than ourselves, and to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In Jesus' name.